Good morning. As we look at the Church of Smyrna today, uh, several weeks back when Lloyd, Bill, Rob, and I went through the, the uh, Revelation series, planning it out, and I saw that I was going to be teaching Smyrna, I thought, well, I've got to study a little bit about Smyrna, Tennessee. I mean, after all, we've got to know the lore. Any of you from Smyrna? No one? One person? No? no that was a hair comb. No one? Okay, have you been to Smyrna? Okay, you know where Smyrna is. Okay, well, just being sure, I mean, you're in middle of Tennessee. Uh, 1810, 1820, circa, the Smyrna Presbyterian Church began. It was um, a very small church in its origins, as most of them are. It, there was no town there. When the railroad came to town, it stopped near that church, and ergo the town took the name from the Smyrna Presbyterian Church. 1863, it was burned to the ground by Union soldiers. It's moved a couple of times. Um, interestingly, if you study American history, a lot of churches were established before towns were there, and the city would take the name of the church. Falls Church, Virginia would be one case in point. Many of them did that. Obviously, they took it from Revelation chapter 2. Um, today, however, if you play golf and go to the 18th hole of the Smyrna Golf Course, that is the location of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. I don't know the theology behind a church becoming a golf course. I just can't wrap my head around that. Some of you who play golf can explain it to me. But if you ever play that course and on the 18th hole, have a moment of silence while you're there. Um, we are studying the seven churches of Revelation. I want to show you inside your program uh, uh, insert that our great graphics team put together for you. Sometimes when you read the Bible, if you're like me, you get down in the details and the minutia, which is where I go, words and so, so forth. And so this is a nice visual to help me see a bigger picture of the seven churches. And you can improve on this, keep it in your Bible during the series and take notes if that would help you to retain some information. And just to review the, the last Sunday and this Sunday, let's start out with Ephesus. And we see how these recurring themes on all the churches, we see each of these themes. Christ is presented as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The commendation, I know your deeds, toil, perseverance, uh, you will not endure evil men. The rebuke, you have left your first love. And probably one of, if not the major lesson from that passage that when we come to Christ, for many of us, there's this invigorating, connected, and we can't get enough of it. We want to study, we want to learn and grow. And then we sort of become stabilized, we might say, and we lose that affection and interest. And just to re rekindle that, the exhortation, remember from where you've fallen and uh, repent and do the deeds that you first did. When we teach uh, young married couples, we often tell them when they get in their married years and they sort of grow stale in their relationship, go back and date the way you did when you were young. There's something about those early dating things that, in your marriage that are meaningful, and you go back to that, and it's a good biblical principle. I remember our walk with Christ. And the promise, he overcomes the tree of life. Today we're going to look at Smyrna, and again you see the same categories in Smyrna. Uh, Christ is presented as the first and the last, who is dead and has come to life. The commendation, I know your tribulation and your poverty. The rebuke, there is none. And on your larger insert, you'll see two churches do not have a rebuke, which is very interesting in the scheme of these seven churches. We'll look at it some today. The exhortation, do not fear, you're about to suffer. Uh, the devil's going to cast you into prison, you'll be tested, uh, be faithful to death. And then the promise, 
uh, I will give you the crown of life and you won't be hurt by the second death. So just to encourage you, step back on these things. A friend of mine, when he looked at my Bible years ago, he said, Michael, I don't know if you've read the Bible, but you've colored most of it. Uh, because I take notes. Uh, I, 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 that's how I, when I fill up a Bible with notes and I put it on the shelf and I buy another Bible. And the idea is it, this interactive helps me study, helps me remember. So I have, I have boxes around every time he gives the, I know your deeds, I know your tribulation. I have boxes around that. I have circles when he has the same repetition. I connect the dots sometimes with pencil lines. Because for me, uh, even though I get lost in the detail, sometimes to see it visually helps me a little bit. And if you're a visual learner, I want to encourage you to do that as well. Smyrna, of course, means myrrh. It's a resin uh, extracted from a shrub. And it's not a tree. It's a, just a small shrub. It's a very common perfume in, in ancient Israel and in, in the Middle East. Uh, in the Bible, in Exodus 30, it was used as part of the anointing uh, um, recipe that God gave uh, Moses for anointing the priest, anointing the tabernacle complex. It's a compound that's used in embalming in the New Testament. And John 19 records that that was part of the process when they prepared Christ's body. So it's a resin, a myrrh, uh, an aromatic substance. Ephesus is about 35 miles north of Ephesus. Remember we talked about these churches. We're going to look at in a counterclockwise way. Uh, John has organized them. Um, it is on the Aegean Sea, on a seaport, and it was called a number of things. It was called the Ornament of Asia, as well as the Crown of Asia, which will come into play in a few minutes. They had a theater that seated 20,000 spectators on a mountain right beside the area of um, Smyrna. It was a Greek colony until 627 BC. It was destroyed by the Lydians. It lay dormant for 400 years. And then a man by the name of Lysimachus came in and rebuilt it about 200 years before Christ's time. It then rivaled Ephesus and uh, Pergamos. Sometime, we can't be precisely sure, but in the back of your Bible you have Paul's missionary journeys. He has three so-called missionary journeys. If you read the book of Acts, it'll say first missionary journey. We put those titles on there. That's when he went out to plant churches to make disciples of all ethnos, as the Great Commission was, uh, to go and make disciples of all ethnos. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the remotest part of the earth. And Paul is the one who executes the remotest part of the earth on his trips. So each time he went out, he went further out. Sometime between 53 and 56 A.D. he goes to this area. And so it's pretty likely a safe ground that he planted this church. People came to Christ and their church was formed there in Smyrna during his lifetime. It is modern Izmir, Turkey today. About 3 million inhabitants in the area. And if you were to go there, which you can travel the so-called seven church journey, it's a pilgrim destination. They call it Old or Ancient Smyrna, which Izmir, of course, has eclipsed. Like many lands, and I, we've talked about this before, but it's important to review this. Um, when, when the Rome came in, the Roman Empire was amazing. They were powerful. They were indefeatable until the Visigoths come in later. But when Rome came into an area, uh, once they subdued, subjugated you, killed enough of you, and you were now in submission to the Roman influence, two things happened. They set up a garrison or what we might think is a military base. Some of you are military families. You understand a base. You set up a base. When you set up a base, you need something, though. You need money to feed all those soldiers, to clothe them, to build a facility that's proper. And so where do you get the money? You tax the people that you are, quote, protecting. This is called occupation. Nothing new. 
military bases all over the world that America has established, as well as other foreign powers have established their own military bases. When you go in, you set up a base, and uh, truly you have to get in uh, money to support that. So Rome would come in. Uh, once they subjugated the people, now they were pretty kind once they subjugated you. You could still worship the way you wanted. They didn't infringe on your what we call religious liberty, but you did have to pay tribute to Caesar. And this is where the rub came. And so was that tribute worship? Well, to the Romans it was because they thought the emperor was a god. Uh, the, the term Caesar, which becomes Kaiser in German and later in English, is the idea of the skin over a man, the skin of God. And so the Kaiser, the Caesar, was a god. And this, of course, presented a problem for the Christian to worship Caesar. Ryrie writes, a pinch of incense was offered to Caesar, and you could get a certificate which read, We, the representatives of the emperor, Servos and Hermas have seen you sacrificing. So you go put your little, you pay and put a little incense on the coal and you get a little piece that says, I worship Caesar today. And you take it home and put it on the wall. Christian couldn't do that. Christian had a monotheistic view. And so to put another God on the mantle of your fireplace didn't work in, uh, for the believer. Other religious groups, of course, they had no trouble with it. Um, Smyrna, a traveler, would see a lot of Greek influence, a lot of Greek temples to Apollo, to um, Aphrodite. Of course, the sexual innuendos uh, in were huge. The huge shrine to Zeus, their primary god in Greek mythology. So that was the culture in which this church in Smyrna is trying to hang on. It is the birthplace of Homer and a historical figure named Polycarp, which we'll talk about in a few moments had a large role there as well. Let's look at Revelation 1, verse 17 as a reminder. Revelation 1, 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. So we call this the self-disclosure or the self-revelation of Jesus Christ. He's telling John who he is. Now turn over to chapter 2, Smyrna, and verse 8. He said to the angel of the church in Smyrna, Write the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. So we had that repetition, the first and the last. He was dead and he's come to life. This is a common phrase you're going to see many times in Isaiah and many times in the book of Revelation. This is God revealing himself to man. I was the first and the last. I was dead and now I'm alive. To put it in principle form, he's saying I'm the eternal one and I'm the resurrected one. I'm the eternal one. I've always existed and I'm the resurrected one. We, we talk about before eternity past. Eternity present and after eternity future, Jesus Christ has always existed. had a very observant question asked in the lobby between services. Was Jesus a spirit or, my word, was he corporal? Did he have a body before he was born incarnate? Now, no theologian can tell you dogmatically uh, the answer to that. I believe he was a corporal person in a glorified state before he left heaven's glory. If he's the Spirit, then why do we have the Spirit and the Holy Spirit and Jesus, the Spirit, and God the Father? 
which is not taught in Scripture. And obviously in the ascension, when he ascends to heaven, he's a little different in his glorified state. In the road to Emmaus, they don't know who he is. So there's a, a change of some kind, but he still makes man what? In his image. So I would argue that he was eternally existing in this some form of corporality. Now, those are, there are people that disagree with me, but they'll come around to it eventually. Um, N.T. Wright and others would take a very different viewpoint. But the, the person and work of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, all through Scripture, lends me to think that he always existed in some form, obviously glorified, obviously without time constraints and uh, and. and uh, space constraints. But anyway, all that's for free. Uh, he's revealing himself as the eternal one and the resurrected one. But we have a problem. How can the eternal one die? If he's always existed and always exists now, how can he die? John MacArthur has a great comment. Here's a profound mystery. The ever-living one who transcends time, space, and history, how can he die? 1 Peter 3.18 Christ was put to death in the flesh made alive in the spirit. And there's the spirit connotation. The corporal body that he's born of Mary, fully God, fully man, can die, can be tired, can be weary, can be hungry. Because he took on flesh, he left the glorification of heaven to come to earth in his humility. He continues, he died in his incarnate humanness as the perfect sacrifice for sin, but now has come to life by resurrection and lives forevermore according to the power of an indestructible life. I like that. An indestructible life. So after he lived, died, and was buried to confirm his death and resurrected, now he's indestructible. When he took on the frailty of human nature in the sense of being born of Mary, Paul talks about it in Philippians, about he emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant and dies so again, he's put to death in the flesh, Peter says, but made alive in the spirit. Um, you've probably been aware of or paid attention to both mass media and social media. In the last probably four, six months, there's been a lot of discussion about is worshiping Allah, Allah the same as worshiping God. There are prestigious universities that are arguing this as we speak for their faculty. Um, just a little excursus on academia. I love academia. I love the university setting. I love higher education. But things have changed in the last two, three decades, dramatically. If you're in engineering, science, math, pre-med, all these type of sciences, uh, in the main, you're learning a skill set. You're learning things that are going to build on. But when you get into liberal arts, sociology, anthropology, studies like women's studies, or you know, when you get into that area of academia, all bets are off what you're going to learn. They're not teaching skill sets anymore. They're allegedly thinking, teaching critical thinking. Two things have happened in academia. One is called tenure, and one's called academic freedom. And if you're bored while I'm teaching today, just open your iPad or your device and look up academic freedom. There is a culture you would not believe that is grinding the axe for academic freedom. Academic freedom means once I have a tenure as a faculty, man or woman, I teach whatever I want. And you can't fire me because I got tenure. It's a fascinating system that we've created. And I'm not saying it's all bad, uh, but what it does, it opens up an opportunity for a person who has that type of training to teach your children whatever they want and to grade them accordingly. If you're not afraid of sending your kid to college, be afraid. Be very afraid. 
And if you're a young man or woman going off to school, you better know what you believe. Because it's going to be tested excruciatingly hard. So what happens is these academics, not in the sciences per, per se, in the more, you know, in, in psychology, liberal arts, these type of fields, anthropology, sociology, uh, they're going to say, what's new and novel? Let's study that, which makes sense as an academic. I get that. And they're smart in their field. I respect that. But they're not going to teach what this book teaches, because this book is out of date, antiquated, a piece of flawed literature. You're stupid to believe the Bible, and that's what you're going to experience. And mo even some Christian colleges now have really moved off the mark. Okay, Michael, where are you going with all this? Um, Allah and worshiping God. Hmm, I can teach that even in a Christian university because I have tenure and I have academic freedom. So that's the world you're going into. Not saying you're insulated from it. I'm not saying you should be. I'm saying you be aware of it. Now here's the deal. Jesus has said here, I'm the eternal one and I'm the resurrected one. I've existed forever. I exist forever now and I exist forever in the future. And I've been alive, dead, buried to confirm my death, resurrected to confirm my power over life, and I grant any and all who believe in me eternal life. He lived, he died, he was buried to confirm death. He's resurrected, and he gives the promise of salvation and eternal life to any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone. That's the great news. It's the greatest transaction ever offered on the planet. I'll forgive you of your sins. I'll love you. I'll bring you into an eternal relationship with me forever and ever and ever and ever. I'll take care of you. That's the gospel. When you look at Allah or any other religion, even monotheistic religions, if you take Christ out of the equation, you got a big hole in this thing called the gospel. So when someone says they're worshiping Allah as the same God as worshiping uh, the God of the Bible, I would say not unless they're worshiping the person of Jesus Christ who is saying here, and the seven I am's in John, the self-revelatory, the self-disclosure. What is Jesus telling us about himself? I've lived forever and I've been resurrected. I'm the eternal God and I am the resurrected God. And apart from me, there is no salvation. Now, maybe you don't believe that, and that's, that's, I'm not angry or upset with you. Maybe you're still on your way studying world religions. Great, good for you. Keep doing it. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm gonna, I'll say it till the last breath. Don't let the world teach you theology. And don't let academics who have tenure teach you theology. And don't let Michael Easley, Bill Wellens, Lloyd Shadrick, or Rob Sweet teach you theology. You better get your nose in a book. Because you're a free agent. You stand on your own two feet before this God. And if you think the coexist bumper sticker is the way to go, God bless you. God bless you because nobody else is going to. The person and work of Jesus Christ is non-negotiable. Studying the seven churches of Revelation, as I've gotten into this, and I know Lloyd, Bill, and Rob would say the same thing, I will tell you, if, if we understand the grandeur of Christ, his awesomeness, I rarely use that word, his eternality, his ability to forgive us, his rebuke and encouragement when we're off the rails, his compassion, that he will make you a new creation, that he's not angry or furious with you, that he loves you. If, if we could sum up nothing else in learning Christology, the study of the seven churches is more than well worth it. 
The Church of Jesus Christ in the West, America, has got the most pathetic view of the person and work of Jesus Christ ever. He's God. Lewis said, he's not safe. He's God. He's eternally existed, and he's the resurrected one. That's what fellowship will stand for. That's what our elders will stand for. That's what our leadership will stand for. There is no other salvation apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ, period. You don't have to be mad about it. You don't have to be angry about it. But when you walk out those doors, I want you to smile at the future and not be afraid of people saying that worshiping X is the same as worshiping God. You need to know that Christ is the eternal one and the resurrected one, and you can trust in that. That's all for free. The message of Christ in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty. I know your tribulation and your poverty. We don't know the precise reason of their poverty. What we do know is Christ is very specifically speaking. Why he's talking to them? Because they're in distress and they're impoverished. The word tribulation can mean a lot of things. It's just being stressed out in our language. It's affliction, probably an oppression because of their faith in Christ. The word poverty here is probably literal, meaning they are poor, they're impoverished. And my educated guess is um, because of the occupation of Rome and the taxation of Rome and the pressure we're going to read about in a minute that they're experiencing, they're sort of taxed to death. And so they're impoverished because of the context in which they live at that time. So they're poor. So they're probably experienced tribulation because of their belief in Christ. And they're probably poor because they're having to pay so much to Caesar to keep things off their back. Now, the principal level of this, let's move from Smyrna to you and me. The principal level is God in the person of Christ is giving a word of eternal hope in the midst of temporal despair. I want you to write this down. God is giving you eternal hope in the midst of temporal despair. Most of you aren't writing right now. God is telling you and me, I want to give you eternal hope in the midst of temporal despair. That's the principle. Eternal hope in the midst of temporal despair. Because we're all going to experience temporal despair. And we're going to see a number of solutions in this passage to getting through temporal despair isn't just getting the despair to go away. It's having an eternal hope in the midst of a temporal despair. That's the theology, but no one ever shed a tear over a line of theology. So let's look at it in a little more depth. Um, Then he says, but you're rich. Which, by the way, if, if, we're, if this church is under uh, tribulation and, and being impoverished, what does this do with the, if you do everything right, Jesus, this is going to bless you nonsense? Did you notice there was no rebuke on the chart? The other churches are rebuked. Two of them aren't. And that's very telling. Smyrna didn't do anything wrong. They're a church in a broken, fallen, sinful context where pressure of some kind is causing tribulation and and impoverishing them. But he says, you're rich. Now, when you first read this, this is like James saying, be warm and be filled. You'll be fine. But we have to look a little more carefully. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might through his poverty become rich. Is he talking about wealth there? He's talking about spiritual wealth. It's hard to quantify spiritual wealth. 
How many times have we referred to Ephesians 1? He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, not here, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The moment you trusted Christ, He blessed you and me with every spiritual blessing that could ever be enumerated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The second part of verse 9, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Blasphemy or slander. Those are words that always sound like religious, you know, you say really bad religious things. That's blasphemy. It's just a form of slander. It's a form of verbal accusation. In Acts 14, uh, the Jews who didn't like Paul and Barnabas' ministry uh, were poisoning the minds of the Jews and the Gentiles. That's a form of blasphemy. When people speak ill of Christians, that's a form of blasphemy. You, you Christians, you fill in the blank. That's a form of blasphemy. It's an accusation of verbal slander toward the believer. Um, Christ explains they're so-called Jews, meaning they're not Jews that have trusted him, and they're actually the synagogue of Satan. Now, let's think a little bit about the synagogue and the church model. The church is called the ecclesia. These are the seven ecclesias that are being addressed. The word ecclesia comes from two Greek words, kaleo to call, and ek meaning out of or from. So the church is the ones who are called out from, Jew and Gentile, all ethnic groups, didn't matter. You're called out from there to Christ. That's the ecclesia. The synagogue is almost the opposite. A synagogue were the people groups that gathered separatistically out of society. If you've been to areas of New York or Chicago that have a large Jewish population, they are segregated if you go to an Orthodox uh, Jewish experience, whether it's a wedding or a service, very typical to have the synagogue divided, where the women on one side, men on the other. You've seen movies, undoubtedly, where the wedding is going on, and the guy's in a chair, and all the men are singing and dancing, and you know, having a party, and it's divided by a curtain or a wall, and the women on their side. The synagogue was the people who were isolated Jews. You had to convert to Judaism to be part of the synagogue. And I don't think it's happenstance here that he's talking to the seven churches of Revelation, but he's saying they're the synagogue of Satan. They're the ones who pulled out and they're isolating themselves and they don't believe in the gospel of Christ, that he's the eternal God and the resurrected God. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. A good rendering would be stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. Human condition is one of anxiety. Human condition is one of fear. For years, for years, I would wake up at 2, 3, 4 in the morning with a start. I mean, I wake up and it wasn't like coming out. It was like, boom. My stomach, and within two seconds, went into a knot. And the to-do list went in front of me. 2.30, and I used to toss and turn and pray. I'd pray for missionaries alphabetically. I would try everything in the world to go back to sleep, and I would just toss and turn, and I realized, just get out of bed, Michael. Just get out of bed. Just get going. And then about 5 o'clock, you're drooling. You're so tired, right? But for years, I had that knot in my stomach. I would wake up and just panic, and I would just go, oh, I have so much to do today. Um, I don't know if it was in my mid-late 40s, but certainly in my 50s, it dawned on me one day, the to-do list is always going to be there. It is never all going to get done. 
And this is not helping anybody, especially my heart and my stress level, to get up at 2, 3 in the morning on my to-do list. Um, if you email me, in full disclosure, I may never open your email. I have 235 unopened emails in my Outlook account alone. I looked the other day. And it doesn't depress me anymore. I don't worry about it anymore. I'm sorry. I can't do it all. I could do 12 hours of email a day and not make a dent in it. And I figure if it's really important, you'll get mad at me and call me. Or you'll call somebody else who really does care. <laughs> I just can't do it all. And I stopped. And you know what? The world didn't stop. What's, what's the number one command in Scripture? Do not fear. Don't be afraid. Why do you think that's the number one injunction in the Bible? Because we're all courageous and indefatigable and we can take on the world and we never have an anxious moment in our life. Why do you think Scripture says more than any other command in the Bible, don't be afraid? Because we are afraid. You may not have a knot in your stomach at 2, 3, 4 in the morning, but something comes across your screen or your life or a meeting or your marriage or your finances or your health or your son or daughter or what you fill in the blank. Your parents getting older and you go to fear. I find it striking that he says here, stop being afraid. You are in tribulation, Smyrna, and you're broke. Don't be afraid. Stop being afraid. Pretty good admonition, isn't it? You know what the antidote to fear is? Being faithful. Faithful living is the antidote to fear every time. Faithful living is the antidote to fear. As you suffer, and you're going to suffer, if you suffer faithfully, you'll receive a reward. That's what he's saying. Now, there have been a lot of attempts to define this 10 days. You're going to suffer for 10 days, and um, you can read about it all you want. Let, let me give you Michael Easley's um, rule of thumb when it comes to numbers. God likes the number 3, 7, 10, 40, 100, 1,000, and 10,000. He likes those numbers. I call them God's theologically round numbers. He likes them. That's all you need to know about numbers in the Bible. God likes certain numbers. Now, how many of you, don't raise your hand, have ever bought a code book? Um, I'm old enough to remember the 88 reasons for the rapture in 88. I've told this story. You've heard it a dozen times. But this guy, he was a mathematician, engineer. I think, I think he might have been with NASA, I forget. But he, 88 reasons for the rapture in 88. You know what? The rapture didn't happen in 88. So he wrote 89 for 89. And he was interviewed afterwards, and he said, quote, I'm going to tell the Lord I gave it my best shot. <laughs> uh, some of you read Harbinger, or you've read The Blood Moon. I, I can't remember the number of emails during Y2K. Oh, my word. Uh, I mean, we had, we had two and three star admirals and generals and PhDs in D.C., and they were prepping for Y2K, baby. I mean, they moved out to Triangle, Virginia. They buried propane tanks. They were prepping before prepping was cool, baby, and they were ready for the end times. We, we had 86,000 gallons of spring water in my basement. Why? I don't know. We just kept buying a bottle. Every time we grocery, buy a bottle of spring water, buy a bottle of spring water. I think two years later, we finished the last bottle of spring water. 
I remember Y2K morning, a friend of mine in Louisiana emailed me, how is it in Virginia? Our barricades are holding. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, um, here's the thing with numbers and codes. They never come true. The moment a person tells you, I've got a code, or I've used math or engineering to fill, figure out the Bible, instead of spending the money on a book, go buy a Starbucks. <laughs> you will enjoy it more, and you will finish it. <laughs> Christ said, no one knows the end but the Father. Why in the world are we sucked in by this cataclysmic, apocalyptic, end of the world, walking dead nonsense? Because we live in fear. Stop being afraid. Your suffering is going to be 10 days. Now let me just give you Easley's heretical interpretation on that. It's going to be short. It's going to be a segment of time. You're going to suffer. Now think about suffering for just a minute. There's no memory of pain. When you're suffering, that's all you think about. But once it's gone, some of you women had children without an epidural. How many of you women had children with a real high? Look around. These are real women, baby. <laughs> I am woman. Hear me roar. When you were going through full out, you know, transition and that baby was crowning and coming out, you're going to kill everybody in that room. Your husband, the nurse, the doctor. I mean, you're in so much pain within 20, 30 minutes of that birth and you holding that little baby. You're still uncomfortable, but you don't remember the pain of those full-bore contractions when you thought you were going to kill everybody in the room. There's a thing they call in pain management the primary pain generation. I live with chronic pain. Not, don't feel sorry for me. But that's my story. Some of you know that. And um, chronic pain is an interesting thing because uh, I had this major surgery in 2010 where they fused my neck and rods and pins and titanium, and it was, it was not fun. And there's so much pain related with that. My normal pain, which goes down my legs and back, so-called sciatica, and, uh, um, and won't bore you with it, but the, the pain I feel at 24-7 down my legs and my lower back, it was gone. Because the primary pain generation, the way God designed our bodies, you can only handle so much pain data. It's the old joke about you got a headache, hit your thumb with a hammer. Because that pain generation is more than the headache. And your body can only handle so much pain. And then there's no memory of it. Now, sure, emotional pain, we can, we can stir it up. But it's not the same as an injury. Pain has no memory. I think there's a great theological lesson here. Um, you're going to suffer. But it'll be so short compared to what's after. Eternal hope in the midst of temporal despair. That's the theology. That's the principle. That's the lesson I think the passage is teaching. You'll receive the crown of life if you do this faithfully. It's not some Herculean thing you got to be a super Christian to do. You're just doing the next thing. You're facing that. You're just doing the next thing. That's what a faithful believer does. He, just, he or she gets out of bed. He or she showers and put, shaves or puts your makeup on and gets dressed. He or she does a load of clothes. He or she takes the kids to school. He or she cooks a meal. He or she, you just do the next thing. I'm going to be faithful, Lord. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to get up out of my misery and I'm going to go forward. That's what he wants in faithful living. I'm not going to avoid the body of Christ. 
I'm not going to avoid time with you, which is my tendency when I'm feeling sorry and sullen for myself. I'm going to do the next thing. I'm going to spend 5, 10, 20, 30 minutes with you. I'm going to read. I'm going to sit. I'm going to keep the technology off and just hold the Bible in my lap and read a few verses and pray and ask God, please help me. Please help me. Just do the next thing faithfully. That's what faithful living is all about. It's not that hard, men and women. It's not some super magical, mystical, theological thing. It's just doing the next thing. And you'll receive the crown of life. What was Smyrna called? The crown of Asia. Intrigues me that this is the gift of the crown of life. If you're named Stephen or Steve, your namesake comes from a ward or laurel or crown or wreath. David On writes in the ancient world, Wreaths were used in a variety of settings with a spectrum of connotations, meaning victory, honor, peace, and immortality. The victory wreath was a metaphor for the reward of the martyr. He who has an ear is an idiom. It's used at the conclusion of all seven churches. You're going to see that. Pay attention. I would argue it goes back to the great Shimon Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God's one. Now, when Scripture says listen or hear or pay attention or remember or don't forget, it's like don't be afraid. Why? Because we don't listen. We don't pay attention. We forget. We don't remember. And so Scripture enjoins us again and again and again. My dad was the master of sayings. When he retired, I wrote a tribute to him in a book, and the last chapter was called Sayings. And I told all these stories of all the sayings that my dad told us when we were children. Turn the light off when you leave the room. Theologically profound. Do it now or sooner. That was one of his favorite ones. <laughs> Hold the light, boy. That's the one that keeps me awake at night. Because I was under the car with the trouble light, holding the light while he was fixing the car. By the inches of cinch, by the yard, it's hard. If at first you don't succeed, try, try, and try again. Company are like fish. The first day it tastes good. The second day palatable. Third day, throw it out. And all these things that Joe easily... And I hated them as a kid. I loathed them. I couldn't stand them as a kid. When I had children, I bequeathed them as my gift to my children. Your papa always said, do it now or sooner. Maybe that's why I had that knot in my stomach all those nights. I don't know. Do it now or sooner. Okay, Dad. I like to think about that when I read these. Hear, O Israel. Listen up. Pay attention, hear me, remember, because the injunction of Scripture is uh, do it now or sooner. Be faithful. You're afraid, you're poor, you're slandered, you're impoverished, you're infirmed. Be faithful. Faithfulness is the antidote to fear. We have an eternal God, a resurrected God, who promises eternal hope in the midst of temporal despair. That's what this text is all about. You'll be spared the second death. It more than likely means the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 14 explains it such. Eternal death, separation, physical, you live forever. You know, we've talked about this many times. All of us, because we're made in the image of God, will live forever. The only question is with whom and where. And those who have a relationship with Christ live with Christ forever in His eternal kingdom. Those who do not have a relationship with Christ live forever apart from Him in the lake of fire. One of the many metaphors of hell being a real place. These believers, many of them are going to experience martyrdom. And their reward is if you're faithful during that small window of pain. What does faithful mean? 
I can handle this. No, it's just doing the next thing. It's following Christ, God's word, God's spirit, God's people. It's just staying in the battle, staying in the marriage, staying with the parenting, staying with the child that's breaking your heart, staying with the medical treatment. You fill in the blank. Fighting the good fight is just getting up and being faithful with what God gave you today. Some of you have gone through cancer. You're still going through cancer, broken marriages, broken hearts, children that break our hearts, financial things, injustices, litigation. We could go on and on all day long. It's another cheery Michael Easley sermon. You're all going to die. Be warm and be filled. Eternal hope, temporal despair. Not a person in this room, not a teenager, not a senior citizen hasn't gone through a period, even right now, where you're afraid and immobilized and the knot in your stomach and the anxiety in your neck, wherever you feel it, and you're going bonkers. Well, what's going to ever happen? What, what if? And you play the what if game? No, stop! Stop being afraid and just do the next thing. I'm going to be faithful today. I'm going to love my husband even though he's a jerk. Love my wife, even though she's treating me poorly. I'm going to go to work and be faithful, even though it's hard. I'm going to be a good follower of Christ, even as a teenager in a school that is so stinking hard and everybody hates my guts. I'm going to raise my children to love Jesus, even though I'm going to have to turn them off to the evil world that's going to eat them alive. I'm going to just do the next thing today. Oh, all you got's today. All we got is today. And all of you are wearing red, Valentine's Day. Good for you. Tomorrow you don't have to wear it. All you got today. That's all I got today. Don't live in fear. What a waste of time. The aged bishop of Smyrna was Polycarp. We have to separate legend and lore from what we know of him. And I'll try to give you my two cents on this. There's a lot written about him. He was known as the aged bishop of Smyrna because he's about 86 when these stories begin. Um, lore and legend has it that he was discipled by John who wrote Revelation. Lore and legend has it that he was actually laid on by the hands of a few of the remaining living apostles. Now that's pretty cool to think about. The apostolic teaching is dropping off. The apostles are dying. Only the disciples have remained. And to think about a few of those apostles putting hands on this church in Smyrna and praying for a young Polycarp. He writes one letter to Philippi, essentially, and you can read it online. It's been translated. It's not biblical. It's just a pastor writing a letter. When we use the word bishop, that stirs up a lot of meanings. It simply means elder or a presbyteros or episcopos, elder or church leader of the church of Smyrna. History does attest he was the bishop of the church at Smyrna. We do have good grounds to say there. Um, Rome came in and they were intent on arresting him and we don't know precisely for what, whether it was just preaching the gospel or not paying taxes or not worshiping Caesar, we don't know. That's, that's way beyond lore and legend. But they're going to arrest him. His friend said, Polycarp, we got to get you out of here. So they took him to a safe place and they hit him. And allegedly he went in this long prayer uh, time, he alone with the Lord, and he had a vision. And he came out and told his friends, I had a vision, I must be burned alive. Now that's legend and lore, we don't know for sure. He goes back to his home, the Roman soldiers do come, and they arrest him. And when he's arrested, fairly well attested, he says, quote, God's will be done. He doesn't fight the guard when they take him away. 
He's escorted to the proconsul by the name of Statius Quadratus, also a very known historical figure, just like a Caesar. We know he was a legitimate character in history. Uh, Statius Quadratus interrogates him. We don't know if it was a panel of judges, if it was just him. The story breaks down. But at some point, he's asked the question to recant his Christian faith and worship Caesar and be done with this. And he says, quote, Four score and six years I have served, served the Lord, and he has never wronged me. How can I then blaspheme my king and my savior? It's very well attested that he said words to that effect. Four score and six years I have served the Lord, and he never wronged me. How can I then blaspheme my king and savior? Accounts vary, but Quadratus and him go back and forth. And apparently Polycarp was quite a rhetorician. He was good on his feet. And uh, Quadratus threatens him to throw him the wild beast, to burn him on the funeral pyre. And finally, at one point, he goes, why do you delay? Come and do what you will. And enraged, evidently, Quadratus has him arrested, and they are going to nail him to a funeral pyre and burn him to death. He says, and this again, I'd give this a 50% legitimacy. He says, leave me as I am. They're going to nail him to the fire. For he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre, the pile of fire, unmoved, without the security you desire from the nails. In other words, you don't have to nail me because the same God who's going to let me face the fire will let me stay in the fire. And here the legends go all kinds of places. One legend is the fire never touched him. It burned all around him, and the Roman guard had to actually kill him. Another legend was when he was burned, he smelled like incense, which would be very um, interesting with Smyrna being a myrrh. I mean, so some of it you got to look at as lore. We just don't know for sure. But he is burned, and he it becomes one of the first church father martyrs, past Stephen, obviously, those who were with Christ. Um, but we do know he was a bishop an elder in Polycarp, we do know he was burned alive on a funeral pyre under Statius Quadratus. Um, I don't think God's going to call you and me to be burned on a funeral pyre. And I don't know the medical process of being burned alive, but it didn't take 10 days, I know that. And excruciating as it would have been until he died, there's no memory of that pain. Because he's given eternal hope in the midst of temporal despair. And that's the lot of each one of us. Luke opened the call to worship uh, with a passage from Romans chapter 8. I want to conclude with that. I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This life, at best, is a clean bus station. It's temporal. We're, we're a small dot on a linear line of eternity. And your task and mine is the same. Facing fear, being faithful. We're not, he doesn't, isn't it good he doesn't say be perfect? Isn't it great he says don't ever sin once more time or I'll strike you dead? Isn't it great we don't have to do 10 things to reassure our salvation or pray a certain way every day or give a certain amount of money before we can check the boxes? He loves you. I'll be with you. I'm the eternal one. I'm the resurrected one. 
Will you trust me? Because I'm giving you eternal hope in the midst of a temporal despair. And I promise you, your despair is going to be like that. And when you and I cross that threshold from this life to the next, the old hymn, the things of the earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Father, give us the courage to be men and women of faith, not fear. We all face it in lots of different colors and forms. What a sad, tragic life to live with the what if and the fear and the anxiety that weighs down a man's heart. But a good word encourages. And your word tells us to stop fearing, to trust you, to be faithful to the end. So give us the courage and the persistence just to do the next thing, to trust you, knowing you love us, knowing you know all about us, our sin and everything included, and you still care. We love you, Lord Jesus. Help us to love you well. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Have a phenomenal day.